Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to Treating Muscle Tension Dysphonia. I am Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Christina Leem is an employee with the ENT Physicians Group at Loma Linda University. She receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. As a reminder, if you're joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com account. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer throughout the episode and at the end of the episode. And here are our learning objectives for today. One, define MTD and possible etiology of this diagnosis. Two, describe areas of weakness in the voice system of patients who have been diagnosed with MTD. Three, explain possible voice treatments and tools that target specific areas of weakness in the voice system that may be contributing to MTD. And now we welcome our guest today, Christina Leem. She holds her Master's of Music, Master's of Science, and Certificate of Clinical Competency. As an SLP, she specializes in voice and swallowing disorders. As a voice clinician, her focus is on rehabilitation of both the speaking and singing voice. She is also passionate about dysphagia evaluation and treatment in the head and neck cancer populations. Currently, she works for the ENT Physicians Group at Loma Linda University. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about muscle tension dysphonia. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for that wonderful introduction. I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Well, we are so excited to have you and special thanks to all of our participants who have been wanting to hear you talk about this topic. And for reasons beyond our control, we had to schedule and reschedule a couple times. So thank you for hanging with us and thank you for being here tonight. Yes, yes. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you hanging in there with us. (laughs) All right, let's get started. I always love to hear people's journeys. So tell us what led you to become an SLP and work with the voice population. Sure. Oh, man, this journey actually started for me when I was five years old. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit of a journey. And so five years old was when my dad was like, I belong to a family of musicians. My dad and mom are singers and my brother and sister and I all took music lessons growing up. And so we, we all are pianists, violinists, and vocalists. And so at five, my dad was like, hey, I'm going to have you sing the special music for church. And so I was like, all right. And so he prepped me and I got up there and I actually fell in love with singing from that moment on and singing in front of an audience. I loved it. I was like, give me more. I started taking voice lessons at age 11 and again, just fell in love with it, enjoyed it so much, and then went on to do an undergrad in voice performance. And so actually, I was an an elementary ed major first, and then I decided, you know, that's not for me, and moved into a music major. And so finished that degree, and then went out and did a master's in opera performance at the California Conservatory, or the California State University, Long Beach, which has the Cole Conservatory. So it was an amazing experience. Got to be in several operas there and enjoyed my time very much. I taught for about 12 years afterwards and during the graduate program. And and so I had a lot of experience in teaching. Kind of at the end of that 12 years was when I was like, you know what? I want to further my education. I always wanted to do a doctorate, kind of prove myself a little bit. So I decided, okay, I'm going to look into my doctorate of musical arts, my DMA. And at that point, my dad had a stroke 
and it was very major and debilitating. And he and my mom live in Oregon. And so I flew up to visit him a couple days after his stroke. He was still in the hospital. He was actually in acute rehab. And his SLP pulled me into her office to show me his modified barium swallow slides, his, you know, video fluoroscopy. And I was fascinated by that. I was so interested to see the, you know, the movement and what was going on during the swallow. And I was like, Hey, that's, that's the epiglottis, isn't that? And <laughs> look at that. That's the hyoid bone. And she was like, how do you know this? I know this. <laughs> She's like, how do you know that? And I was like, well, I took a for the voice anatomy and physiology for the voice as a singer. I actually even TA'd that in graduate school and I loved it. That was one of my favorite classes because it talked about vocal anatomy, physiology, and then how to keep the voice healthy. That was my favorite class. So anyway, she was kind of floored by that, but then she told me something that has stuck to me to this day. And she said, you know, a lot of my SLP colleagues actually went and got their music degrees before they went back to school for speech. And they now work as vocal therapists. And I was like, there's such a thing as vocal therapy and vocal therapists. I had no idea. And here I had been a singer in, you know, the singing world, performing and teaching for years. And I had no idea. And so I was like, I'm going to look into that. That's interesting, you know, because it's right up my alley of like vocal health and recovery and, and you know, preserving your, your voice and healthy singing and all of that. So I actually wheeled my dad out of that appointment because, you know, my dad was in there with me and she had shown the whole family what was going on with his swallow. And so as I was wheeling him out in his wheelchair, I asked him, dad, wouldn't that be interesting if I became a voice therapist? And he was like, in his very aphasic way, he said, that be good. And so I was like, you know, okay, I'm going to look into this. And I looked into it. I did more digging. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Like, this is up my alley. This is something that I can also, you know, sustain a family with. It doesn't require me to fly all over the country and <laughs> perform and stuff. And I can still do that. I can still do what I love. But it's a beautiful marriage between science vocal health and the voice. And so I've never looked back. It's been one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And I love what I do. So yeah, I, I have the master's and I went to Loma Linda University and enjoyed my time there very much. Well, that is a wonderful and beautiful story. And as you said, a perfect marriage between those disciplines. And we're so happy that you did it does speak to the PR that we need to work on for our field that you were in a related profession and unaware that speech-language pathology even really existed. Yes, I think it's now becoming more of a mainstream topic to understand on your team, your voice team, you need a teacher, a coach, a speech-language pathologist specializing in voice, a laryngologist, and yourself. <laughs> And then some other people too, dance instructors, yoga instructors. I mean, you need a lot as a singer and an active performer to do your craft. So it is being a vocal athlete. So you need a good team around you that will actually help, you know, guide you and direct you to lifelong singing and being. Absolutely. And we're so pleased that you are an integral part of that team. I'm excited, very excited to be a very integral part of that team for a lot of my patients. Yes. Tonight, we're going to talk about muscle tension dysphonia. Before that, you did have, let's talk about your early career. So you went to Loma Linda and then where did you do your CF? Yeah. So I did my CF here actually at the Loma Linda Voice and Swallowing Center. I currently work in the same place. I did my CF and it has been such a great nurturing, fostering experience. I've learned so much over the last, I think it's been five years now. I can't believe it, but it, it's been a great place to learn and a good launching place. Well, that is wonderful. And you know what, before now, we've talked quite a few times, but I kind of thought you were 25 and I'm doing my math and, and you're not. So you're doing something right, Christina. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Botox. <laughs> it's not just for the vocal folds. <laughs> That's right. Okay. 
So let's jump into muscle tension dystonia. And can you describe what it is, what it is and what it's like living with muscle tension dysphonia for the patients that you see? Yeah, this diagnosis, muscle tension dysphonia, which I'll refer to as MTD, I think is the most vocal diagnosis that I get that walks in through my doors into my therapy room. I see this every day. I mean, multiple times a day. So muscle tension dysphonia, it's a voice disorder characterized by like excessive tension in the internal, the intrinsic and the external in extrinsic laryngeal musculature. And so it also has basically a disruption of efficient vibratory parameters. So that just means that when we listen to somebody with MTD, we can hear a disruption or a dysphonic type of sound. So Oftentimes we'll hear a roughness to the voice, kind of like maybe like this or strangling into it. And it sounds kind of like somebody's being strangled. They might have a pitch quality difference, like the, the classic mini or they might have a rough, deep voice. They might say, like if it's a female, they might say, I sound like a man and I hate it. A lot of people, when I answer the phone, think I'm a man. So some of the common complaints that I hear from my patients are that my voice is not reliable, it's not consistent, it changes day to day. A big one is that I have pain when I speak, or I feel like this burning or a soreness in my neck, or my voice cuts in and out and of the conversation, and I feel like I can't have a prolonged conversation, or my voice gets worse the more I use it. Where people don't understand me, I have to repeat myself many times and it's exhausting. I'm not able for singers, I'm not able to sing higher pitches anymore or sometimes lower pitches or my pitch range is reduced. The quality of voice often changes and the ability to sing softly has been reduced. Like people can like belt it out, but they can't actually sing the really soft pitches. Um, mm hmm so oftentimes like this impacts like quality of life, as you can imagine, I liken this like a voice disorder as to having a leg issue. Let's say your knee, your something happened to your knee and you can't walk on it. So you don't realize how important your feet are to you and your legs are to you until you can't use it. Right. And it's the same thing with the voice. Like some of my patients, even one today said, I lost a job because I couldn't speak for more than like two, three months without pain. So I had to switch careers entirely, or I lost one of my patients, unfortunately, before they came in to see me, they lost their house because they couldn't pay their mortgage. It has like a major impact on people's lives. So you can imagine like, then that would affect their mental and emotional health, right? So a lot of my patients become depressed, withdrawn. They don't seek out socialization activities anymore. And it becomes this like thing, like a cloud over their head. It's a really, you know, affects quality of life a lot. Absolutely. Wow. That is so hard for you to hear as a clinician, especially when these things happened before they came to see you. And things may have been able to have been different if they had sought the services earlier. So let's jump into the diagnosis. How is MTD diagnosed? That's a good question. So we always encourage our patients, if they haven't already, if they referred outside from an outside facility or outside physician to be scoped. So to do a video laryngo or video stroboscopy, so a laryngologist will look into the larynx and then using like a flexible endoscopic tool, and then they'll take a look and they can look at the parameters and they diagnose based on certain parameters and they will say, okay, you have MTD. So if they usually don't get a stroboscopy, video stroboscopy, I will then send them to the laryngologist 
to get that diagnosis. Of course, I can scope myself, but I cannot diagnose that, right? So that is definitely something that we always want to see and visualize the larynx before we treat because it could be something completely different. And we need to base our treatment, not just on what we hear, but also on what we have seen through diagnostic treatments or diagnostic measures. And that, of course, comes from the laryngologist or the ENT. So they may diagnose with primary versus secondary MTD. And so primary MTD occurs in the absence of an identifiable fixed laryngeal pathology, for example, like a vocal fold lesion or paralysis. So that would be meaning you don't see anything organic growing on the vocal folds, right? And they don't have a neurological component, right? So then secondary MTD refers to MTD occurring co-committantly with pathologies. So maybe they do have a vocal fold nodule, which would be a pathology or some other type of like maybe a, a weakness of the vocal fold paralysis. So yeah, that is basically primary versus secondary, and we might treat them slightly differently based on those diagnoses. So it's important to get that diagnosis before starting treatment. Okay. All right. And let's talk about the etiology. Mm, yeah. So McGeary et al. in 2018 found that there were three basically etiological categories. So the first would be psychological or a personality factor. So when it comes to MTD, most of my patients who have a diagnosis of MTD, I pull up their chart and they also have usually anxiety and depression that goes along with it. Sometimes not, sometimes not, and maybe it's not diagnosed too, but that is something that I see quite often. And sometimes also introversion could be another factor for the etiology behind the psychological and the personality part or factor. The second is vocal abuse and misuse. So we sometimes call that and refer to that as phonotrauma, phono meaning voice, trauma meaning traumatic. So some people, you know, have a lot of voice use and they use it in a high loaded manner. And so sometimes they can develop that MTD along with it. And then also thirdly, it could be a compensation for an underlying organic disease. So for example, maybe they do have like that secondary, like vocal fold lesion. They might have LPR, which is the laryngopharyngeal reflux. So it's acid reflux coming up into the throat and maybe irritating and burning the vocal folds in the surrounding larynx. Maybe they have presbylaryngis, which is basically aging larynx, right? So maybe their vocal folds don't meet in the middle as they used to. Maybe there's a little bit of a slight gap. And so they have what we call glottic insufficiency. And so that could be another underlying organic disease or disorder. Or maybe they've had an upper respiratory tract infection and their larynx is super irritated. I mean, this we see after COVID, right? A lot. It can be a mixture of all three, usually not just one thing that creates MTD, this recipe for MTD. Usually it's a mixture or a combination of one of those three, but those are the three main etiological categories that we have seen so far. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do you see just one or usually, you know, several of these? Yeah, so it usually so sounds like several. at least two, but probably several. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as well. I came across a study and I can't remember exactly who it was by now, or it said that most of the MTD diagnoses are stemmed from that third one. It's like a compensation for an underlying organic disorder that we don't actually see or it's untreated at that point. And then the MTD kind of creeps up and is basically secondary to that underlying organic issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So really kind of develops out of a compensatory strategy. Exactly. Which overloads the system. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now that we understand what it is, and let's just check to make sure that we don't have any, I don't see any questions from our audience on that. 
So let's move on to treatment. So just to review, though, the evaluation, they may come to you after the ENT has already diagnosed, or they may come to you and then you send them to the ENT. The ENT or laryngologist is the one who does the diagnosis. Yes. So if you scope, you can see it. Technically, it always has to come from the the MD. Short answer, yes. Um, Yes. Okay. (laughs) So there's a difference between ENT and laryngology too. And I didn't have this in my notes, but I think it's a good time for us to discuss that because ENT is usually a generalized ear, nose, throat doctor, right? Whereas a laryngologist has had an extra year, two years, sometimes more of fellowship in specifically the voice in the larynx. And so they actually have more specialization in the voice itself. So I always try to encourage, I'm spoiled. I work at a voice and swallowing center with wonderful laryngologists who are literally fantastic. They know what they're doing. And so I usually get my referrals from them, but I encourage anybody, if you do have a voice problem, or if somebody comes to you who maybe is like a professional singer or a singer, and they're like, I, you know, got a referral to speech from my ENT, I always recommend, hey, let's get you back in to see a laryngologist, specialized voice doctor who can actually take a look at your vocal folds using video stroboscopy. And that gives us a clearer idea of how your vocal folds move and how they're doing at time of phonation. So I highly, highly recommend that. Not that ENTs, there's, you know, they're not good, but a specialized voice specialist, laryngologist is always encouraged. Well, thank you for that clarification. That's very helpful. Okay. So once the laryngologist makes a diagnosis, then they come back to you, or maybe they have already seen him or her and come back to you. Where do you start? Yes. So first things first, I listen. I ask questions. Of course, it's the intake, right? I want to get a good history. So I listen to them and I may do a little probing. I might ask some questions more than just about the voice. I might ask questions like, hey, when did this first start for you? Was there any situation around the time that was maybe stressful? Because we'll talk about later how stress impacts the voice. So I like to zoom out, like to think about like zooming out, looking at the whole person and treating the whole person and not just the symptoms. So I often think about their physical vocal health being similar to their emotional or mental health. So, you know, I ask them about, are you, you know, in still or in a stressful situation? You know, how is your home life? What is your job or work life like? You know, do you have hobbies? Do you get out and do things? Like I ask them a lot of different probing questions to actually ascertain a bigger picture. And then from there, then I can go into treatment targeting areas where I feel like, okay, we can actually get down to maybe the root of what might be happening here. So I talk about awareness, the first step. So I tell my patients, hey, part of my job is to actually make you aware of what's going on in your voice. And a lot of people are not aware of their voice. They take it for granted. It's just kind of like your legs, like we talked about, right? You get up, you walk, right? But unless it breaks down, yeah, or somebody points it out to you, you're not aware of how it functions. So part of my job as their voice therapist is to help them become aware of their voice and how their voice is functioning. So part of it is this symbiotic thing. And then also I might at the beginning start to kind of gently and kindly point out, oh, today your voice sounds really kind of strained to me. How does it feel to you? Or I might ask them, hey, can you describe your voice, you know, to me and how it feels and sounds to you? And they'll oftentimes have a lot to say about that. So what I do in that awareness is I basically identify the areas of need and the weakness in their vocal system. So maybe they have a really weak kind of sounding voice, lots of breathiness behind it. 
or maybe they have a very strained voice. They're like really going for it and it's loud and it's strained. So, you know, I kind of point that out to them and they're like, yeah, I feel that. Or sometimes they're like, oh, really? This is the first time anybody has actually ever said anything about maybe, you know, what their voice feels or sounds like on the outside of their body. So then I talk about vocal hygiene and that term is a little bit older now. It's basically how to care for your voice, like healthy voice principles, such as hydration. And this is an indirect method of vocal therapy. So there's direct and indirect. Indirect would be like, you know, all the things under awareness that we'll talk about. And then the direct would be more of the exercises and the hands-on kind of things that of course we'll get into later as well. So then also under the awareness bubble, I love to use the thought of vocal economics and vocal budgeting. So I introduce basically voice therapy under this bubble of vocal economics and budgeting, and they understand it. So I'll present it to you guys. So economics is basically, you know, spending more, spending less, having more, you know, to, we talk of under vocal economics, we talk about vocal energy, basically, and how we're spending our vocal energy. And so we can think of your voice as not being infinite, right? But as being finite and having a finite amount of energy to expend throughout the day. And I like to think of this as a vocal budget because everybody understands budget. And so most I like this. Did you come up with this on your own? No, I've heard it around. I don't actually, I tried to look up who came up with this term and I could not for the life of me find it. So, but there are other people who use this same principle basically, but vocal budget. So I like to think of it as maybe having $10 to spend throughout the day for your voice. Okay. And your voice will have different tasks that we require of it. For example, a lecture like today in this podcast, might cost a certain amount of dollars. So for me, maybe it would be a $3 amount, $4 amount, right? A singing rehearsal, choir rehearsal, that last two hours might require another dollar amount, maybe $4, maybe $5 out of my vocal budget, right? Having a quiet dinner with my family, that might cost me $1, right? With no background noise or whatever. But being in a noisy restaurant with friends and, you know, having to compete over the noise of the restaurant and the music and everybody else talking, oh, that might take $3, you know? Depends, again, on how much I talk, how long I'm there, how loud the music is, and so forth. You're over budget if you did this all in the same day. (laughs) Exactly. So that's the problem when we get into the red, when we have spent more than our $10 or our allotted amount, we then get into the red. And if we do that day after day after day, you can imagine then that piles up and the debt piles up and it catches up with us. And it usually catches up with us in the terms of a vocal pathology or a diagnosis like muscle tension dysphonia. So I love to tell my patients about that bubble, but then also say, hey, we can add to the budget. We can give a little bit more padding to this budget. So we talk about the tools then that can help with that. And we're going to kind of get into that. But there is a really great, if you want to Google this, and I I was going to have it in a handout, but it's not my handout to give. So you can Google it. Google vocal budget guide. This is by Christine Estes. It talks about like the different spending (laughs) that you can have throughout the day. So there's like free vocal items. There are expensive vocal items and there's like depleting vocal items and unexpected vocal items. And I really love this handout. We, you know, sit down and I talk with my patients about this because some of them use their voice. Most of them use their voice for a living right? And so we want to make sure that they actually can use their voice in a functional way so they don't lose their mortgage, so they don't, you know, have to switch jobs or careers or whatnot, but they can use their voice in a sustainable way using this vocal budget guide. So, well, excellent. I'm going to put that in the chat. Yeah. I want to make sure I have it correct. So vocal budget guide by Christine Estes, Mm E-S-T-E-S. 
E-S-T-E-S. Correct. Okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That sounds like an excellent resource. Yeah, it really is. And I love how it's broken down. She does a great job. It's easy to see and it's a really great way to help your patients go, oh, okay, I can still use my voice, but let's make sure I use my voice in an economized way, right? So I'm not spending more than I have (laughs) and going into debt. No one likes that of any kind, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So then I also talk about their voice as being injured, right? I mean, at this point, they come to me with an injury. They're not able to run a marathon, right? They're not able to just get up and walk. (laughs) They might be limping, right? With their voice. They might have another pathology that is also, you know, a problem, not just MTD, right? We talk about that. So their vocal budget might be more limited than $10, which then can, you know, be a little tricky. And we talk about readjusting and trying to figure out how to best work with the budget that they have. I really like how it puts the client or the patient in control of managing that budget. Exactly. Exactly. Because it is all about empowerment. And that's my last part. So we go from awareness to instruction to implementation. And that's part of, you know, awareness. Yes, we take all the tools that we learn to, and then we implement it into everyday life, but they have to feel empowered in order to do that. We'll talk about that in a second. So now instruction. So we had awareness, building that awareness, talking about like the indirect parts of voice therapy, right? Identifying those needs, the vocal hygiene, how to care for the voice, the vocal economics and budgeting. And then we get into the instruction. So this is the tools, basically. It's the techniques. It's how to adapt it to their everyday life. And so we'll talk more and we'll break that down a little bit more in the next little bit. But once they master those or feel really confident with them, and I practice with them, we start from day one in the session doing voice therapy in a conversational manner. So there's actually a really great tool called conversation training therapy. And we'll talk about that too in a little bit, but they start day one, applying these tools, feeling the difference in their voice. A lot of them are like, whoa, I don't feel pain when I'm speaking this way. And I'm like, yeah, isn't it great? (laughs) Or man, my voice sounds so clear. It sounds different. It sounds better. And I'm like, yeah, isn't that awesome? A lot of times their family members in with them too. And they're like, yeah, I can understand you. It's great. So when you get that buy-in, then we start to implement the tools and we talk about generalization and how they can take these tools and what I say, rubber meets the road. This is the hardest part in voice therapy. This is the part where they have to go home and they have to practice it. So I always tell them at the beginning of, you know, any intake or eval that I do, hey, Voice therapy is work. You have to be willing to put in the work. You can't just come into therapy and expect, you know, your voice to be better. No, you have to put in the work at home. And it it does take work and dedicated practice. And I often ask them, hey, are you willing to do that? (laughs) So then you get their buy-in. And so then they can actually go home and generalize this. And they feel empowered then. They feel like, oh, I can change my voice. I can feel better about this. And hey, I can actually have control over my voice, which oftentimes they come in and they're like, I have no control over my voice. Did you hear that? It just went out of control. That empowerment piece is really exciting because voice does carry over to so many other aspects of your life. You know, if you can't present in front of a group because of your voice, you know, you're not going to be very confident. So such an exciting part of the job. It is. It really is. And then we talk about self-regulation and, you know, that practice piece is part of it. I might ask them, hey, when's a good time for you to practice these exercises? You know, or what can you take away from today? And when do you think you can actually implement them? A lot of my patients drive. I live in Southern California. We have traffic and they might commute for work, you know. And so oftentimes I'll say, hey, do you think you can do this exercise while you're driving? Of course, I make sure it's something that... They can drive safely in and not create more traffic or traffic problems. 
But I'll ask them, you know, do you think you can do this in the morning before you go into work? Or do you think you can do this on lunch break or or whatever, right? When can you incorporate these exercises into your everyday life? And so that is often a really helpful thing because that find that practice or lack of time to practice or just not thinking through when they can practice is a barrier to their treatment. So if we can get that out of the way and we can, you know, talk about that pretty early on, then they can embrace the treatment more effectively. Yeah. Taking it one step further to kind of dissect when you can find the time, whether it's now, do you recommend sustained practice or, you know, like five minutes at a time throughout the day as it fits with the schedule? It really depends on the person. It also depends on the exercise. I love the principle of, you know, small, short practices throughout the day because that really solidifies things in the brain, right? The research shows that. So, you know, if they can carve out five minutes, three times a day or a minute every hour, I find that in my practice, that really does seem to make things click a little bit better for my patients. And they come back and they're like, hey, look, I can do this. (laughs) Or they're like, hey, I feel like I've really kind of mastered this area. And I'm like, great, good on you, you know, keep doing it. So yeah, but it just depends. Some people, you know, they don't have five minutes here and there to do something. So I say, Hey, can you do this on your drive into work and on your drive home? You know, whether that be 10 minutes or an hour or whatever, you know, I say fit it into that drive. And a lot of my patients kind of go, Oh yeah. When I get in my car, that's my cue to do my (laughs) voice exercises. Well, that's great. I have to admit, I've been going to PT for my knee and that conversation may have helped me practice a little bit more consistently. So I speak from lived experience. (laughs) Yes. And you know, actually, that's where I learned it. I actually had to go to PT for my foot too. And I was like, how am I going to fit this into my day? I had sprained my ankle badly, like torn things and they were considering surgery. And so I was like, oh gosh, all right, let me do these PT exercises. But then first of all, I would forget, you know, I talked about then putting alarms on my phone with my PT and I was like, oh, that's a great idea. I can do alarms. And so I talk with my voice patients about putting alarms on their phones, you know, whatever it takes to actually help you remember to do the exercises, because the first step is to actually remember right. <laughs> that you've got to do them, right? And prioritizing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, oh. definitely. But really figuring out where it's going to fit in your day is is a very good idea. So yeah, I'll let you know next time how that's going. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> All right. So back to muscle tension dysphonia. Let's talk about some specific techniques, tools, or the therapeutic interventions that are most important for us to understand when treating this population. Yeah. So as I had said earlier, there's direct and indirect I think both of them are very important because direct uses those therapeutic tools, the interventions, the strategies, the exercises, that kind of thing, which the patient then feels like, okay, I have something to do. Like this is a tangible thing. I need to do this. It is, you know, my voice exercises. But then there's also the indirect, which we talked about too, as being like, how to care for the voice, maybe not using phonotraumatic kind of loud speaking or harsh laughing or high, loud, long singing, or, you know, maybe I need to be drinking more water throughout the day. A lot of people don't drink enough water, you know, and of course, research doesn't exactly show how much you should be drinking, but I always say, Hey, let's aim for the bottom and reach for the top. So my bottom is 64 ounces. As you take a glass yes. of water, I love it. <laughs> Good reminder. My bottom is 64 ounces. And so I want to get them to that, like that goal, that low goal. And then the top would be, you know, half of their body weight in fluid ounces. So, I mean, and some of them, of course, 64 might be a little bit more than, than half their weight in fluid ounces. But, you know, I say, hey, you decide what you feel like, where you want to land, but anywhere in between that is fine with me. But if you do use your voice for your occupation, like if you're a physician, which I see quite a few, or if you are a teacher or a pastor, or you, you know, lecture for a living or whatnot, 
hey, you use your voice for a living. Or if even you're a stay-at-home mom, you use your voice for a living, right? You actually take care of your kids and you have to talk to them all a lot. So if you use your voice more, you got to drink more, you know? So anyway, we talk about that all indirect therapy, the vocal economics and the budgeting and so forth. That's all under that too. But right now I want to kind of shift the focus into the direct. So what can you do? So I like to break it down into three areas and I literally draw a Venn diagram for my patients. I can't draw worth squat. So, (laughs) but I just draw three circles, basically interlocking circles. So one bubble at the top and then two at the bottom. And in the middle, there's that kind of like, uh, it's almost like a triangle, right? So within that triangle, I usually color that in and I say, Hey, this is the intersect for healthy, happy, free, easy voice. And they're like, I want that. (laughs) I'm like, yes, that's the goal. Right. And so I put in the top bubble breath. Then I put in one of the bubbles to the left and to the right phonation, and then the other resonance. So we talk about those three things and the balance between those three things. If the breath is off, then phonation and resonance will also be pulled off. Cause you can imagine that bubble kind of, you know, veers off to the side, then of course we get kind of thrown off. So Uh, Same thing goes for phonation and the same thing goes for resonance. So I like to kind of look at this under those terms. And I listen, again, I listen to the breakdown in their voice. I listen to what their voice sounds like to me. So for example, maybe their voice sounds really like strained and pressed. They might have this kind of speech to them and it's really kind of effortful and pressed. Might think to myself, okay, what do I hear in that voice? Along those three parameters, ooh, I don't hear very much breath flow, right? I see they're taking kind of shallower breaths. Oh, okay. I might also hear that their voice sounds really, like I said, pressed and strained and like their vocal folds are actually over valving, right? Because your vocal folds are a valve. So, okay, then, oh, they're over valving within that phonatory system. And then I think about their resonance. Oh, they're kind of down in their larynx. Okay, that maybe they have more laryngeal resonance. And so I look at this, like their voice, and I break it down. So then I address those areas of weakness. So for example, let's take breath, okay? We think about breathing and location of breathing. If you hearken back to your days, if you took voice class or if you're a singer, you know, location of breath makes a difference. And we think about that low respiratory inhale, right? So we want to take the breath almost like into the belly, right? A lot of my patients who come in, not just with MTD, but pretty much anybody who walks through my door, they take a breath, a really shallow, high breath. We call that clavicular breathing, right? And so that's actually a less efficient way to breathe. And so I explain it to them. And we go into then learning to take that abdominal breath and that low kind of relaxed breath. And so we work on that. And a lot of times that takes an entire session because this is not an easy thing for a lot of people to grasp. Releasing your abdominal wall is not something we're used to. We're used to, you know, in and up and holding it in and we're not used to breathing low. So that might be something I start with. And then thinking about releasing that breath through the respiratory drive. So releasing through the vocal folds, really important to think about that. And we will get that a little bit more into that on phonation, but they kind of tie hand in hand. So we also think about then maybe, hmm, do they not have enough respiratory drive? A lot of people, if they come to me in a wheelchair or maybe they're just deconditioned because of COVID or whatever, right? The aging, I say, hey, let's put you on the device, the EMST 150. So EMST stands for Expiratory Muscle Strength Trainer is the level. So there are two different versions. There's the Expiratory Muscle Strength Trainer 150, and then there's the Expiratory Muscle Strength Trainer 75. The 75 is the light version, and usually I don't give that to many of my patients unless they have like respiratory compromise like COPD, or maybe they have really bad uncontrolled asthma, 
or so forth, emphysema. And then maybe we start them down at the level of 75, EMST 75 light version. But most of the time I'll start my patients on the 150 version. And so what that is, is it's basically, if you guys have ever worked in the inpatient world and work with ventilators, it's a peep valve. It kind of manages the airflow between outside and inside, right? And so what you do is you kind of blow really hard into this peep valve and it has a one-way valve that you push against and it's a resistance. So it, in essence, it's kind of like for your larynx and for your respiratory drive and for your diaphragm, it's weightlifting because you push against the resistance. It's loaded, right? It's kind of like, you know, picking up a dumbbell or a kettlebell. And so you can actually adjust this device to be higher every week. And there's instructions that come along with it. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me. I, you know, I can give out my email at the end, or you can look it up online too. Just Google EMST 150. There's a lot of research on it. It's a really great tool for the voice. It's been also studied more and more for the swallowing. And it's really a great tool for anybody who works in the voice world, the dysphagia world. So, but that's something I target for breathing. I really like that device. Then we go to phonation, all right? So we're thinking about their vocal mechanism and are they overvalving or are they undervalving? So overvalving would be that kind of pressed speech and undervalving would be this kind of really breathy sound perhaps, right? We want to optimize their phonation and their vocal fold closure, right? So we think about then the vocal function exercises We think about a set of exercises, four exercises that start up with a warm up. Then we go to glides, you know, going through the pitch system. We're basically stretching and then we have the holds on specific pitches. So we're strengthening. So it was a really great tool developed by Stemple and speechtherapypd.com has a course on it. I moderated it for Christina Kong and it's fantastic. You should go check it out if you want to learn more about the vocal function exercises and how to do them. But let's say if somebody has one vocal cord that is, or one vocal fold that is weaker, it has a paresis. They come to me with a diagnosis of vocal fold paresis with MDD. Then, you know, we will start maybe on those vocal function exercises and get them kind of in this system. It's an eight-week program twice a day. So it does take some commitment on their part. And I usually introduce that to them at the beginning and say, hey, is this something that you can do feasibly, like within your life? Does your life allow for this? If not, we're going to do something different. But if so, hey, let's go for this. I've seen some really good results. The next one would be like semi-occluded vocal tract exercise. So we call this SOVTE. And that is basically an occlusion or semi-occlusion of the vocal tract. So vocal tract goes from your vocal folds all the way out your lips, right? And we usually think about an SOVTE as elongating the vocal tract slightly. So we could use a straw or we could even pucker the lips perhaps to get a little bit more of that elongation in the vocal tract. And then we also think about semi-occlusion or partial closure of the vocal tract. So usually that again is at the lips, the level of the lips, or we can use straws, we can use a kazoo, we can use many different tools. There's a lot of tools out there, the sing ring and other things like that, that you can use voice trainers that actually help with semi-occlusion, which semi-occlusion, what that does is it provides back pressure to the vocal folds and this relaxes and realigns and resets them in their optimal position. So it's a really great tool for pretty much anybody who uses their voice. I used it before I came on here because I had been using my voice all day. And this is another thing that actually can give you more dollars in your vocal budget. It's a really helpful tool. And then we talk about maybe along the, the phonation lines, we talk about stretch and flow or flow phonation. So I'm using that tool right now myself as I'm speaking. I'm using the breath to kind of carry my voice and I'm connecting the sounds together, the words together to link them in a way that actually flows. So if I don't use it, this is what my voice sounds like. And it has a little bit more of that hoarseness and that roughness and maybe a little bit more 
stoppage in between and you hear that airflow that has stopped, right? So using that airflow just kind of helps to actually smooth the voice out and really take away some of that strain from between the vocal folds. We think about that as being like an open throat feeling. And again, Christina Kong on speechtherapypd.com has a really great thing. It's called flow phonation. So if you just put it into the search bar, she has a really great course on that. You can take it. Thank you for that plug for speechtherapypd.com. Of course. (laughs) And then we also have resonance. We come to resonance, which The big one in this is resonant voice exercises. And I love to use resonant voice exercises with that gesture of the hum mm, to feel that forward phonation, that forward buzz, that vibration in the forward part of the face and in the mouth. So like the lips, the teeth, the nose, the alveolar ridge, all of the places in the front of the face that really help to bring their voice out of their larynx, because oftentimes it's here, as Christina calls it, the dungeon. Christina Kong calls it the dungeon. And and into their mouth where it's freer. And we see that research shows that when they actually have this, this resonant voice, they're using this oral or frontal resonance, their vocal folds are vibrating, not like smashed up against each other, but at one millimeter to 0.5 millimeters apart from each other. So it's, it's actually able to release some of that tension. So I love this for my muscle tension people. This is my hard hitting one. I usually go to this one actually first, and maybe I play around and that's the biggest thing. None of these voice exercises should be thought of as, okay, this is the gold standard, right? Because every body is different. Every voice is different. Everybody's voice, even day to day, minute to minute, is they're different, right? And so we want to be able to manipulate, or that's not the right word, but to use the different tools that we have in a different way, break the hierarchy, basically, and not have to just stick to one type of voice exercise, but be able to kind of go... Hmm. Okay. Resonant voice is just not cutting it for you today. Oh, you know what? Let's try some semi-occluded vocal tract exercises and go to relaxing your vocal folds using a cup and a straw and doing some bubbles. And I find that that is actually very helpful for my patients to be able to kind of switch it up on them, find what works for them for that day. Optimize, right? Yes. Yes. There's a lot more under that, but I... It's fast and furious. This is an hour. So I know it's a lot of information in an hour. When you talk about, you said that's one of the first things that you do is is focus on resonance. Within that first session, are you usually able to generate some specific changes in the voice? Great question. And most of the time, yes. I mean, I would say about 90% of the time, I want them come away with something and feel like there's hope for their voice. A lot of people come in hopeless. Just, I don't know how I'm going to you know, fix this. I don't know how it's going to change. It's been like this for a long time. And I want them to feel hope. I want them to feel empowered. I want them to feel like they have some control over maybe a part or all of their voice. So most of the time in the, you know, the first session at the eval, so I'm taking voice measures, I might do a video stroboscopy, I might, you know, of course, do the history and a good intake and do a Cape V and all of that. But if we have time at the end, and it's most of the time I leave, you know, 10 minutes or five minutes even to do this, I'll say, hey, let's try something. I want to play around with your voice. Let's see how we can make your voice better. And so we try, you know, maybe I start them off with a hum, or maybe I feel like, oh, they need some breath in their, you know, in their voice. So we start off with a sigh, just feeling that openness, which is, you know, a flow phonation kind of technique. It just depends on what they present, but I usually try to have them feel, oh yeah, that felt different. And then I can also see, hey, is their voice stimulable? Can their voice get better? And I always put that in the note too. So, you know, patient stimulable for decreased dysphonia to maybe from moderate to like mild using blah, blah, blah technique today right? And so that gives me a good launching place too for the next sessions, right? And for the next time I see them. 
And gives them hope, as you said. It's exactly. Probably the exactly. most important thing to leave that evaluation with some hope. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a question. Let's see. Since a lot of your patients struggle with anxiety and depression, do you encourage them to get therapy for these conditions or join a support group? Oh, we didn't have time to get into it, but yes, 100%. I highly encourage my patients. Here at Loma Linda, we have a behavioral health institute and we are partnering with them and their 30 different therapists to be able to send our patients in a warm handoff to them and they get them in in a timely manner. I highly, highly recommend building a network if you don't have already that kind of network, but handing them off to a a therapist who can actually help, who is specialized also, this is really important, in trauma and trauma-informed therapy. Because I have seen time and time again, my patients who come in with MTD, and this is a lot of patients, not just with like the secondary MTD, but primary MTD, who I'm like, you know what? Let me ask them this question once we build the rapport. And I say, have you ever been through any trauma or traumatic experiences in your life? And of course, we all have, right? But they will all go, yes, how did you know? I was raped as a child or, you know, whatever it was. It, it Big, big trauma, big time trauma. And I'm like, all right, let's not unpack that here necessarily. I'll tell them about how that trauma affects their voice via the vagus nerve. And we don't have time to get into that today. But, you know, we, we talk about that. And then I say, you know what? I think you would benefit. What do you think about going to see a counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, you know? And most of the time they're open. So, you know, I, I send them over to my colleagues at the Behavioral Health Institute and they get help. And there's actually been a lot of studies that voice therapy outcomes are really positive when you do cognitive behavioral therapy. And I hope in the future, there will be also trauma-informed therapy studies that show that that is really helpful for voice therapy outcomes. So important. And what a wonderful resource for you right there and to have that collaboration. And are you working on some studies with them? That's a really good question. No, at this point, I'm not, but I would love to in the future. Yeah, that actually is something I'm very interested in because the voice and the body and brain and body connection are so, so strong. And if, you know, you're not doing well emotionally, it'll show up in the voice. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, w- I would love to do future studies on that. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. Yeah, I will. I will. Okay. Well, we have a few minutes left. You brought a case study or two. We probably have time for one, maybe two. Why don't you just pick your, your favorite study and awesome. we'll go from there? Okay. So this one is a secondary MTD. So he had also presbyphonia, which is the aging voice. He had bilateral vocal fold atrophy. So this patient was a 78-year-old male. His voice complaints were that he couldn't talk on the phone for more than five minutes without coughing or without his voice giving out. His voice would get worse with use. His voice was weaker than normal. And people were really having a hard time understanding him. And he found this super frustrating because he could no longer pay his bills over the phone. He couldn't have a normal conversation with family and friends. And he would just cough and cough. And his voice would be really worse, like just wear down to basically nothing. And then one of his also a big complaint was that he couldn't start any conversation or even start to speak without clearing his throat. So, like I said, he was diagnosed with bilateral vocal fold atrophy and muscle tension dysphonia. When he came to me, I placed him as severe. His dysphonia was very severe. He he sounded fairly dysphonic. I noticed that he had a decreased respiratory drive with that roughness and strain component. And then he couldn't really project his voice very loudly as well. So within that first eval, I said, you know what? I think I want you to start the EMST 150. And he was like, all right. So he purchased it. You can go online and purchase it. I send most of my patients to do that. It's the 150 version. The 75 is available actually through some insurances cover it. So you can go through the website, but I just had him start on the the 150 because I thought that would be hard hitting for him. 
And I was planning on introducing some other exercises to him that may help with, you know, the vocal fold atrophy as well as that strain. But he came back to me, his first therapy session was six weeks later, and he had like moderate dysphonia, most significant for just a little bit of roughness and maybe a tiny bit of strain. And he was so happy because his outcomes was that he was able to speak on the phone for as long as he wanted or as he needed. And he was able to be understood clearly. He could pay his bills. He could talk to his family who lived, you know, across the country. And he was super happy with his progress. And he was like, can I be discharged? And I was like, well, honestly, you are doing great with your voice. And he's like, this is my voice. I don't, I don't feel like I need further therapy. So what was the point for me to push other therapies on him? So I said, yeah. And we discharged him within one session because he was doing so well. Wow. Wow. That's great. Really hones in on that whole person. When you weren't going for, for a perfect voice, we're going for a functional voice that worked for him and he was happy. So yep, that was a, a good use of resources. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, there's a, a really good question I want to answer. Yes, this is a great question. Okay, so um, thank you for asking it. And this participant asks, how often do you do massage for MTD? Yes, often, actually. And I didn't even put that in because it doesn't fall into like breath, phonation, resonance. But yes, that body mechanics is super important. We talk about that with, you know, the breath and where that location is. But it also plays into how much tension they're holding. So oftentimes I will say, hey, let me palpate your throat. Are you all right with this? I always ask, you know, can I feel your throat? And then I will palpate and literally look and check for areas of their vocal mechanism that might be tighter, such as their thyrohyoid space, right? So that's the space between the hyoid bone and the thyroid cartilage, right? So it's right in that space. And I will palpate a lot of times for my patients with MTD, they jump. They're like, oh, that hurts. And I'm like, all right. So we need to work on that. And so I will have them do a circumlaryngeal massage at home. I don't want them to get dependent on it though, because I don't want them to be like, this is how I fix my voice. Because honestly, yes, we want to physically manipulate the voice to be in a better position for voicing, but I also want them to use the strategies and techniques and tools so that they can maintain that better position of their larynx, if that makes sense. So yeah, that makes sense. That's a good yeah. point to make. Yeah. I also sometimes refer out to PT. There has been a lot of studies that the co-concurrent use of voice therapy and PT is really helpful for people who have neck pain, because if you have pain in the neck, oftentimes in your back of the neck, that'll radiate to the front of the neck and that tension will manifest in that way. So I want to, you know, address root of the problem here. So I will refer out to PT and I also will sometimes say, hey, you need to go find a medical massage therapist because your whole body is tight. You need to go get a massage so you can stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system of relax and rest and digest so that you can feel your whole body relax. Well, and that's just a good reminder that the voice therapist is just part of a bigger team. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are. Well, let's see, we are just about out of time, but could you quickly share the other case study because people do sure. find it so interesting? Yeah, yeah. So this patient was a 28-year-old female. She was a singer and worship leader at church, and she also worked during the week at a beauty school giving tours to prospective students. She had lots of speaking and singing voice complaints. Some of the singing voice complaints included like it hurts when she would sing. Her voice wasn't clear. The quality changed. You know, her voice cracked and it had like big major pitch breaks, which weren't there before. It was harder to change registers and it was really hard to sing higher pitches. And then some of her speaking voice complaints were that like she experienced a lot of vocal fatigue by the end of the day, a lot of dryness. She had like a feeling of a lump in her throat, which we call globus sensation. And her voice really sounded kind of gravelly to her. So she was diagnosed with primary MTD. And so when she came to me, I categorized her under the mild, moderate dysphonia area. So not terrible, but enough to be, you know, heard. and 
she had a clavicular higher breath pattern breathing, and then she had a lot of strain and roughness in the voice too. So we went through her treatment. She went through five sessions of treatment, including, you know, increasing that awareness of her voice in singing and speaking. We talked about vocal hygiene. Really important for her was hydration. She wasn't drink enough water and also taking vocal naps. I had her on the EMST 150. We talked about the low abdominal breath support. She did a resonant voice technique exercises. We did the circumlaryngeal massage and some manual therapy too. And then we did straw phonation, which was the semi-occluded vocal tract exercise for her. And I incorporated that into a vocal warm-up for her for any time she would use her voice in a high manner, whether that be, you know, going in to give a tour for an hour, you know, with a lot of people in her tour, or whether that be to do a rehearsal or, or perform, right, to sing for her worship job. So her outcomes were really great, too. Her After the first session, she was pain-free, which was great. She was like, I can sing without pain anymore, and I was super happy for her. And so she found that the most helpful tools for her were the resonant voice, the semi-occluded vocal tract exercises, and the massage. She did those in a good routine manner. She felt no fatigue by the end of the day or with singing. And then at discharge, she self-rated the severity of her voice as zero, which was great. And I also gave her no dysphonia by end of discharge, and she was very happy and pleased. So that's a little different. You know, sometimes, of course, we discharge with, and we still hear that dysphonia, but for her, we discharged with no dysphonia, basically, and and she felt really happy with her voice and her outcomes. Well, that is so exciting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This was so interesting and you provided so many examples. And for the person who has never worked with MTD, I think you provided a great starting point. And for those who have been working in that area, I think you offered some ideas as well. So well, thank much you very much. Yes. Thanks so much, Mary Beth, for having me. I appreciate you and your comments throughout today as well. I felt like it was a conversation. So that was really helpful. Well, thank you. Thank you. And then we have a participant who's saying thank you very much. So, oh, there is a question. Let's see. I think that's a question for Tabby. She can answer that question. So Tabby, if you want to answer that before we close out and leave, there's a question from B. Okay. All right. Well, it was so fun. And you are coming back in August, right? You're going to help me co-host for one of our colleagues. And we haven't quite figured out all the specifics of that. But for everyone who enjoyed hearing Christina tonight, be sure to tune back. I think it's August 14th or so. Yep, it Uh, is. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for to all of our participants for participating tonight. And as we said at the beginning, being patient with us as we worked out the schedule for this wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Everyone have it. And the quiz is in the chat. So if you need to do that, you can get to that link that way. All right. Everyone have a great evening and thank you. Enjoy your evening, Christina. You too. Take care.